Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It is Friday, November 4th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week runs the gamut on policy subjects from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. So hosting today's program is Bruce Moreland. Bruce co-hosted the KYMN Climate Show with Alan Anderson for four years and is quite active in Citizens Climate Lobby. Bruce also has a monthly column in both the Faribault and Northfield newspapers. And the man sitting across from me is John Olson. The force behind the microphone, who's well-known as the host of National Security This Week, Wednesdays at 9 a.m. right here on KYMN. Today on Public Policy This Week, we're going to talk about nuclear energy, its history, controversies, and the current and future place nuclear power has in our power infrastructure. I'm really looking forward to this show. Uh, at the June 2022 Citizens Climate Lobby meeting, we were given a nice overview of nuclear energy but the nuclear fear industry is described by Carrie Emanuel in an article in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists in November has positioned or poisoned the conversations, perhaps less so in my side of the world, but we're all apolitical here. But it was interesting to watch the reaction of that crowd. It's an important topic to discuss. So, uh, Bruce, why don't you go ahead and start us off with our introductions? I can do that. Our first guest for this important show on nuclear power is Don Harker. Don has worked in the industry for over 40 years. His experience includes being an officer in the U.S. Navy Nuclear Submarine Service, a senior reactor simulator instructor for Westinghouse, various roles at Exelon Nuclear, and over 20 years in the energy consulting business. He earned a Master of Management degree from Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management and a Bachelor of Science degree from the U.S. Naval Academy. Don Harker has consulted on a wide variety of nuclear power projects all around the world. And our second guest is Dr. Josh Gerrell. Dr. Josh Gerrell has been working in nuclear energy research and development since earning his doctorate in nuclear engineering from Texas A&M in 2010. He currently works at Idaho National Laboratory as a senior technical advisor for the Department of Energy's Advanced Nuclear Fuel Availability Program. Over the past five years, he's also managed a pyrochemistry and molten salt systems department, as well as a used fuel management department at Idaho National Laboratory. Before joining the Idaho National Laboratory, he worked for seven years at Oak Ridge National Laboratory as an R&D staff member with a focus on modeling and simulation of nuclear reactors, as well as spent fuel management. Uh, gentlemen, let's go ahead and get started. I'll, I'll ask this first question of both of you. Either of you can get us started uh, uh, today. Uh, it's a little bit basic, but probably worth asking to put all of us on the same page as we begin our discussions this morning. So what exactly is a nuclear reactor? How does it work? What kind of power does it produce, and how does it do so? Um. I'll take a crack at starting that, um, John. Okay. I mean, basically, basically, uh, a nuclear reactor is another way. Um, the way it's used currently in this country is another way to um, heat water. You know, if we all remember back to uh, high school physics and E equals mc squared, you know, it basically says that energy is equal to matter some, times some constant. Well, there are certain substances substances such as uranium, thorium, and plutonium that are inherently a little bit unstable. And when we hit those substances, those atoms, 
with a, uh, a neutron, they break in two. And the energy released um, helps produce heat, and we transfer that heat in a nuclear reactor um, to the water. There are two types of reactors currently in use in the U.S. There's boiling water reactors where that heated water goes directly to a steam turbine, much like a coal plant or a gas-fired combined cycle plants, or a pressurized water reactor where that water goes to an intermediate heat exchanger and then heats other water that is turned to steam to turn the steam turbine. So, so that, in a nutshell, is what's going on in a nuclear power plant. Josh, anything to add on that? No, I think that's a great description. You know, when I think about the, what a nuclear reactor is, I, I'm thinking it's, a, it's basically a heat source. Um, you're, you're, you just need something to heat up the water that, that turns the steam, that turns the turbine, that generates the electricity. Uh, it just turns out with nuclear reactors, you're, you're using that splitting of the normally the uranium atom, that, that, that fissioning, they call it, to release that energy. Um, and, and that process, fortunately, is really energy dense. So you, in very small amounts of space, you can generate a lot of uh, heat and energy. Um, and so it's, it's a really effective process um, for generating energy and, and electricity to, to put on the grid and power your homes. I think I read somewhere that something like 8,000 times more energy produced from a nuclear uh, plant than from fossil fuels. Is that, is that about right? Yeah, it's it's incredibly energy dense. Um, so let me just bring up uh, nuclear fuel is not uh, a liquid. It's actually a solid. Um, so it's not the green news you might see on a popular cartoon. And um, so in uh, you know a very small amount of this uh, solid uh, fuel, maybe the tip of your finger, you have as much energy as a ton of coal or 120 gallons of oil. Um, so, so it's really, really energy dense. It's really amazing. Very cool. All right, we we hear all the time about the dangers of nuclear power, right? And I'm kind of a cognizant of how weird it is that we're spending so much time on the dangers of something compared to what we did in 1750 when we started burning coal and nobody noticed that we were going to destroy the atmosphere while we did that. So I'm curious what uh, what some of the sources of the dangers are from nuclear power. What are the actual dangers and how safe are they compared you know, and nuclear power plants as a whole? And I know we're going to probably have to dip into the different generations of design a little bit to understand how that safety has evolved. I mean, um, what, when, when, I, when I think of nuclear power and, you know, I, th- I think danger can be a, a loaded word in that it's a, it leads you to an emotional argument. Um, what, I think that the aspects of nuclear power that give people pause are, one, there's ionizing radiation, which, um, you know, can affect your DNA, cause cell mutations, as we saw in the early 50s, atomic era B-movies, you know, the attack of the 50-foot woman, things like that. Um, there's those type of things. Um, the second is proliferation of nuclear weapons, which is very real. You know, in a nuclear reactor, you can create substances that can then be further processed through a very technology-complex process to produce um, material for nuclear weapons. And the third being that we've created a substance that has a very long 
um, in comparison to people's lives, almost infinite lifespan. You know, so the ionizing radiation, people talk about that, but yet in the medical field, ionizing radiation is used to, you know, help treat cancer, uh, create x-rays, things like that. People don't seem to have that concern there. When you go to the dentist's office, you're being subjected to ionizing radiation. The nuclear proliferation aspect is done through international safeguards and engineering processes. And then the production of long waste, which we'll get into later. You know, people look at long-lived nuclear waste as a problem, but yet, you know, plastic may have a longer lifespan than nuclear waste. So it's a, it's it. when you talk about the dangers of it, you have to say relative to what? If you look at most industrial safety measures, nuclear power always scores very high as a safety measure. Yeah, I'll just add very quickly, Bruce and I were talking before we came on the radio this morning. Uh, I, I read an article in preparation for today's show that discussed that the world, the world was introduced to nuclear power through the detonation of two atomic bombs at the end of World War II. And that sort of colors a lot of people's perspectives on what nuclear power is. Uh, and, and then we've had a couple of uh, significant accidents, like Chernobyl as a great example, uh, that highlights some of the dangers. Now, that was probably not a great design, that particular nuclear power plant. Uh, but Bruce brings up a great point about uh, what are the actual dangers of, of nuclear power. And, Josh, maybe you can further comment. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the, the potential dangers of the reactors are, are very similar um, to what's been brought up. I mean, there it is a radioactive material, so it does release radiation, and you need to control that. Um, but, but I do think there's sort of a, a fear as it pertains to that nuclear reactors could look like nuclear weapons or something like that. And that, that really isn't the case. Um, you know, just the engineering of a reactor and what the material is and how it operates. I mean, it just, it, there's sort of a night and day differences between weapons and reactors. And I still think there's some, um, perpetual concern uh, around a, a nuclear reactor being somewhat like a nuclear weapon. That's just not the case. And so I, I do think there's, you know, you, you have, you know, material that you have to properly manage, just like any other engineering process, any other energy source. You need to, you know, make sure that the, the public is safe, the workers in the facilities are safe. And uh, fortunately, I just maybe note that the the nuclear industry in this country is very well regulated. Um, we have a very strong uh, independent regulator, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, they've been, you know, making sure that nuclear reactors are safe in this country for for. 50, you know, several decades. And uh, we've learned a lot um, on sort of as we've gone along on the best way to, to safely operate these plants. And I think we've done an excellent job. I think the the track record shows that from a, you know, a danger to the public or even to the workers on our sites, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a great track record. The, the one of the problems that we often run into in the, in our news cycle is that when an, when an airplane crashes, it crashes every hour on the hour for the next week. And our mind is set to hear that information as if it was fresh each time. And so we develop an exaggerated sense of how dangerous these things are. And I think it's the same with nuclear power. You know, every time an incident happens, we hear it over and over and over, and then people whip out those old grade B movies, and we get a lot of our information from those movies, unfortunately. So 
Is there anything, I mean, do we have any numbers that we can put on this? Uh, I, I saw a figure, for example, once that said that the number of deaths per petajoule <laughs> was much lower for nuclear than it was for, uh, say, carbon fuels. Do you guys have any sense of that? Um, yeah, in, in preparation for the show, I looked up, you know, I mean, I think they compare like... Uh, Brown coal, light coal, oil, the deaths per uh, unit of energy produced for, say, brown coal, maybe 32 uh, deaths per year, whereas nuclear power, solar power, and wind are significantly less than one. Um, so if you use that as the metric, you know, nuclear power is once again just um, a, a, a solution to the current problems that we were facing as far as climate change. I know that when, when we heard about nuclear power at the CCL convention, that was part of the reason is we were, you know, a, a, a wealthy society has a lot of watts per person. That's what makes right. them wealthy. And if we're going to replace uh, a lot of energy, we're going to have to have something like nuclear. Uh, I was at a piece. Well, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, you were talking about uh, in the U.S., you know, I, I, that, that how it, nuclear power came into our conscious through the end of World War II, the development of the Manhattan Project, you know, the uh, proliferation of B-movies. Unfortunately, the China Syndrome movie came out just that the TMI accident happened. So there's always been this, um, I think, tenuous link to um, nuclear weapons, which is is not true. But if you look at other countries, specifically Canada now, which don't, don't have a, a link to a nuclear weapons program at all, and the younger generation, they are developing nuclear power in um, right now, hand over fist. They are a significant force in the world's development of nuclear power for the future. I think, so I think on that point, Don, I think I just read an article where uh, uh, Canada is putting, I think, a $930 million initial investment into uh, developing more reactor power. Is that uh, is that about right? Yep, that's true. That's uh, specifically, I think, for the, um, the SMR uh, that they're building at the Darlington site. A, um, we'll get into it later, a GE Hitachi model. But they're doing other things as far as... Uh, small modular reactors, which we'll talk about in the future for process heat, you know, to power gold mines, to extract tar sands. So when we talk about nuclear power, we're always talking from the U.S. construct and how we've grown up with it. Um, other countries, France, Canada, they don't have that construct. Yeah. Okay, gentlemen, I have a, a, a question that... I, I mentioned this show yesterday at my Rotary meeting that we were going to talk about nuclear power. And after the meeting, I was—I had somebody come running up to me and said, "Well, you know, the, the nuclear industry just produces these, you know, m tons and tons of nuclear waste. So I, we, I, we need to straighten that out. So how is nuclear waste currently stored, and how much is actually out there right now? And then what kinds of dangers exist from storing it?" Uh, storing this nuclear waste. Sure, I'll I'll, I'll take the first <laughs> shot at that one. So, uh, so you know, nuclear waste um, is a byproduct of nuclear power. Again, we've been operating plants for decades in this country. We generate 
you know, a substantial amount of electricity from nuclear power, something on the order of about 20%. And so, and we've been doing that for, you know, three or four or five decades. And so um, the nice thing, you know, one of the things I sort of caveat nuclear waste is when we put, when we put in nuclear fuel to a reactor, it comes out of the reactor. It looks about the same, but it's, it's more radioactive. And that's the nuclear waste that you're worried about. We are basically managing all of the waste from a nuclear reactor. You know, there are a lot of other energy sources, you know, that, that don't do that. Uh, you know, they release their waste to, to the environment. We do not. Every stick of waste that we've ever generated, we currently know are, are managing safely without risk to the public. And so I think it's important when we talk about nuclear waste is to understand we've been doing this for a long time. We've We've safely been storing and managing this material without risk to the public. So that's maybe the the baseline, I'd say, is I think it's something to actually it's something to be sort of highlighted that we are managing our waste instead of releasing it directly to the environment. Um, as far as the amount, though, we have been uh, generating uh, tons of, of spent fuel um, over the last 60 years or so. We actually have about 90,000 metric tons of spent fuel generated. But, you know, I brought up earlier how energy dense nuclear is so if you actually look at the whole volume of the spent fuel um, as is right now we have on the order of for all the spent fuel that's generated for the last 60 years to power this country if you look at the volume of it it's about a football field that's 30 feet tall that's it from a volume perspective i mean that's that's it i mean for 60 years i mean and so now, of course, we don't store it on a football field stacked up <laughs> uh, because it is radioactive. But, you know, it's incredibly energy dense. So you don't need, you know, you're not looking at just mounds of nuclear waste out there. Um, it, it, we, fortunately, in this country, like I said, we have a good regulator to make sure we handle it safely. And we have been handling it safely for, for six decades. Um, so let me, let me, and then maybe the details of how we manage it safely. So each reactor generates... Uh, spent fuel. And these, again, are solid materials, nuclear fuel solid. Um, so it goes into the reactor. It op- it's in there for maybe three or five years, depending on the on the model of the reactor. It comes out. It looks geometry-wise very similar, but it's, it's radioactive now. And it generates radiation and heat. And um, so initially, it'll come out of the reactor and be placed into uh, a swimming pool, essentially. It's a steel-lined uh, spent fuel pool. Um, and so basically the, the, the fuel goes into that, that water pool. They call it wet storage. And it ensures that uh, the, the water shields uh, the fuel from the workers in the facilities and the public. So it's preventing radiation from, from reaching them. And it also keeps the fuel cool. Um, and because the pool has to, the pool, um, you may change the temperature and it cools the, the fuel off. Because the fuel, as it comes out of the reactor, is still generating a lot of heat. So it has to be cooled off. After about, yeah, at a minimum three to five years in the pool, the 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 fuel has reached a temperature and a and a and a heat generation rate that's low enough that they can move it out of what they call wet storage to dry storage. And so, um, all of the nuclear plants that are um, in the U.S. Uh, I think all of them, maybe there's one that's not quite there yet, but has dry storage at their facility. And these dry storage systems are massive robust structures um so you put spent fuel into these right circular cylinders canisters all right think of a can um, but they're very big and they're stainless steel 
and uh, you're there maybe six feet in diameter and 15 feet tall. So very large structures. And then you move those canisters that have the spent fuel in them into these very robust dry storage systems. And these dry storage systems are made of concrete, stainless steel, lead, other things. Um, and basically, they're set outside, essentially, on a concrete pad. And they they basically are stored safely, effectively, efficiently. Um, and they and those systems prevent radi again prevent radiation from going to the public, prevent any release of nuclear material. Um, but these things are huge. The, these individual canisters and the structures can be over a hundred tons, um, and so they are incredibly robust. And our regulator the, um, really ensures that they can survive, um, you know, a whole range of, of uh, concerns, you know, natural disasters, other things. So, you know, I, I just, you know, that's sort of the state of play of how we manage spent fuel in this country. But I, I think it's, a, it's, you know, yes, it's spent fuel and yes, it's nuclear waste and we have to manage it. But I think it's, it's really a highlight that we've done it safely and effectively um, with these sort of really simple engineering solutions for, uh, you know, 50, 60 years. Well, as we we know, uh, it only takes little incidents to get blown up into a movie or two, and next thing you know, you got giant bees running around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, gentlemen, I have a couple of follow-up questions I want to ask on this uh, storage uh, piece. Uh, and, Don, I'm going to go back to what you were talking about initially as well about how the reactor operates. So, if I if my understanding is correct, if I if I remember my engineering from the Naval Academy, the the nuclear uh, reaction that takes place creates heat. Uh, you have uh, uh, sort of intermingled uh, water systems around the reactor that flash to steam. That water flashes to steam, which which is not radiated at all. It's not connected directly to the radiation, and that drives the turbine that that creates the electricity. Uh, but then you were is that is that correct, Don? That's that's correct in a boiling water reactor. Okay, yes. boiling water reactor. So that's one example. That's one of the ones I remember from engineering. And I was a history major, so you have to cut me some slack here. I'm not I'm not a nuclear engineer. Uh, so so uh, jo Josh, you were just talking about the cold the wet storage uh, initially out of the uh, out of the reactor itself. Uh, what is done with that water? Because obviously that water has been exposed to radiation. How is that water stored? And I'm, I'm assuming that that water is continuously cooled through some sort of a separated system where you're giving off the heat and recooling the water to keep it cool. Yeah. So um, maybe I'll just speak to that real quick, and Don, you jump in. But but generally, all of our operating reactors have a pool, right? So that they still have that pool, and the water's in there. Um, they they have a very uh, robust filter system on the water to trap any potential uh, particulate or um, basically irradiated material that, that could have gotten into the pool. So they have a specific filters, filtration systems for those pools to collect anything. So the water continuously circulates. And yes, there is some heat exchangers to ensure basically the water stays cool at a certain, you know, there's a very, again, the very well uh, regulated um, process at these reactors. And so there's a very tight uh, band for the temperature of those pools. And so those, though the water, they keep it a very consistent temperature. Um, the filtration systems ensures there's no contaminants in the water. Um, and so if there is any sort of waste, the water stays really clean, but those filters are, are what actually gets, uh, traps any radioactive material 
and that that is properly managed. Generally, that material is uh, there's different sort of types of of nuclear waste. These are generally very low level waste. It's not a, it's not incredibly radioactive, and so you can manage those um, and disposition that material appropriately. Yeah. yeah, I would just say you know when we talk about nuclear waste from the nuclear power plants, it's it's important to say that. The major, the vast majority, is all low-level waste, rags, uh, uniforms, etc., and that is all sent off to landfills um, that are are properly managed. So we're we're focusing on high-level waste, uh, fuel rods, and the way a fuel rod is designed is, if you remember as a kid, you know, you had those snakes that you would lit at Halloween, those little <laughs> things. That's about the size. That's about the size of a uranium fuel fuel pellet okay and you stack those in a uh, a rod that's about 13 feet 15 feet tall and that it is clad in a um, zirconium um, and the idea is that none of the fission products will penetrate that cladding through operations and it's that is put into the fuel pool. So the water in the fuel pool, if it would become contaminated, it would be due to slight perforations in the cladding. But that is that is highly managed and highly unlikely. I mean, when the water is in the fuel pool, um, to inspect various aspects of the pool, we send divers into the water. Hmm. Um, so it's not um, a life-threatening situation in the water and as Josh has pointed out, there are filters to keep that water clean, um, produces minimal waste, um, and those filters would then be disposed of either as low-level waste or um, something else. And I have one other follow-up question on the storage piece. I know that there had been some discussion about opening up Yucca Mountain uh, for permanent storage for nuclear waste in the U.S., but we've run into lots of issues about transporting nuclear fuel, uh, safety concerns and whatnot, from the nuclear reactor sites of power plants around the country to Yucca Mountain. Where, where are we at in that process? Is that, I mean, Josh, you're sort of the, the expert on the nuclear fuels uh, storage and transportation. Uh, yeah, so let me, I'll, maybe I'll speak to Yucca and then we can talk about some of the transport uh, topics you brought up. So so Yucca Mountain is a, what it was sort of the plan for disposal of, of the material. Uh, this is not sort of long-term storage, but true disposal, deep underground um, sort of get rid of this material disposition. Um, there was a lot of work done on Yucca Mountain. It was a, it's a, it's a site uh, out in Nevada, um, you know, several decades. Um, there was a lot of technical work done. Um, there was a license submitted to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, the NRC reviewed, reviewed that license, generally agreed that it, it technically could be done. Um, but during that process, politically, it was stopped. Essentially, um, the, the the state in Nevada was not supportive of, of Yucca Mountain and, as such, um, was able to, to essentially stop that from a political perspective, not a technical safety perspective, but really a, a, a you know public support of the state. So it's sort of on indefinite hold at the moment. Um, there's no sort of active Yucca Mountain activities going on. Um, but the idea for Yucca Mountain was that, you know, we have reactors across the country. The idea was instead of um, having all this material at the reactors and, and very safe dry storage, but still dry storage nonetheless, they would bring that material to Yucca and, and bury them underground. Um, but that's on pause for the moment. Um, so maybe and then 
so let me speak to the transportation issues as part of Yucca. As of the Yucca Mountain Project, there were transportation corridors and plans set up to move all this material. Uh, I would I would argue that the transportation of this material has been done safely um, throughout the country uh, for 50, 60 years. We've had over 2,500 shipments across the U.S. and probably tenfold that around the world. And so, again, the transportation systems... I talked about how robust those storage systems are. The NRC, the regular regulator, um, requires incredibly robust transportation packages to survive almost any sort of accident. Um, so the testing that goes into design of those casks is is amazing. Um, they they have to survive long fires, floods, impacts. Um, there's some actually some really uh, interesting youtube videos of trains (laughs) actually hitting them and uh, these casks and surviving so they're really a robust system from a safety perspective i just don't you know i think that's something that maybe people against nuclear power bring up but we have an excellent uh transportation safety record much much higher than than sort of any other uh energy source it's just really impressive how robust these packages would be for transport we're going to take a break, a quick break for uh, Station ID. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. We're broadcasting from our studios in beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm John Olson alongside my co-host Bruce Marlin, and we're talking to Dr. Josh Gerald and Mr. Don Harker about nuclear power. All right. So, Josh, let me um, ask you to start us off on this question. What is the state of play for nuclear reactors in America today? How how many are there? How old are there? What generation? Um, things like information like that that people might want to uh, have in the back of their minds as they're thinking about this issue. Sure. So so we started again. We talked about this earlier. Um, a- after World War II, nuclear started to kind of be of interest. Um, nuclear weapons, but also nuclear power and peaceful use of nuclear. And so we started really building reactors in the the early sixties. Um, most of our current generation of reactors were 70s and maybe early 80s when they came online. So again, 50 plus years of nuclear experience. Uh, I think we've, we've, uh, on the commercial side, I think something like 120 reactors may have operated, um, over the last 50 years, we'll call it. Uh, right now we have 93 operating reactors, um, is my understanding. Um, these are all, uh, Basically, what I'll call these light water reactors. Um, Don mentioned this earlier. These are very large uh, base load sort of reactors. Um, and when I say base load, they, they come online. They they can produce maybe you know a, a, a thousand megawatts, which is a large amount of electricity, can power maybe up to you know maybe up to a million homes. Depends on how much you need. Maybe maybe half a million. Very large energy sources. And so we have. 93 of these operating reactors, really impressive. The safety record's great. Um, they've, they've operated for 40, 50, 60 years. The, the hope is they'll continue to operate. Again, we talk about the regulator being very um, very rigid, I guess. So they, they review the licenses to say how long the reactor can operate. Most are going to operate for about 60 years. Several are looking at operating for 80 years or longer. So that's sort of the history. Um, I think we'll see our next, our, our last two large reactors come online in 2023. Um, these are the Vogel sites out in Georgia. Um, so one in early 2023 and one in late 2023. Um, 
But uh, we generated, again, about 20% of the electricity in this country from nuclear, rea- from nuclear power over the last, again, several decades. Okay. I, I'd be curious. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring in a, an old technology. I'm going to bring in the B-52, which we have been retrofitting for decades. And some of those planes are being flown by the grandchildren of the original B-52 pilots. Are are nuclear reactors like that? Are they very refurbishable and reusable? Uh, I I think definitely in the the regulatory regime we have, all the critical components are inspected over time. A great deal is learned about um, how uh, radiation affects the building materials in nuclear power plants. The NRC then um, has been extending licenses in 20-year increments. Um, There is no uh, technical reason why they cannot have the same history as the B-52 and and go on and on and have improvements added to them throughout their lifespan. For our listeners, the B-52 is one of our large strategic bombers. We got, I got a bunch of Navy guys here that I have to explain <laughs> this stuff to. So, Don, I'm going to ask you to comment on this next one uh, since you've been in the industry for 40 years. Uh, what, what are the impediments to building new nuclear reactors today? Uh, it, it, does the current cur- permitting process, does it make it too hard for utility companies to build new reactors? Can you, can you give us a sense of what the process looks like right now, especially from maybe a cost-benefit analysis? Um, um, in the United States, just speaking in the United States, um, for commercial nuclear power plants, um, the NRC is tasked with ensuring, uh, you know, public safety and that these are operated and designed properly. And they have a very robust process that people have to go through. So it is not um, surprising that it would take five to ten years to get a design certified by the NRC. The, the most recent one to be um, certified is the new scale SMR. We'll talk about that later. But the, the Koreans... Uh, went through the process and they got a uh, 1400 megawatt um, plant certified but you know there are no customers now so the advantage that other energy sources specifically natural gas uh, wind and solar is they can be designed permitted and in operation in less than half the time it takes to get a nuclear power plant design approved um, it has not always been that way. Um, when the Atomic Age started in the U.S., the Atomic Energy Commission, um, through Eisenhower's uh, Atoms for Peace program, we built approximately 20 reactors in this country between 1953 and 1967. One of them was even built in Elk River, Minnesota. Um, and... So at that point in time, the regulatory process was um, less bureaucratic, for lack of a better word. But it's important to also note that the Department of Defense and Department of Energy in this country have the capability to license their own reactors. So what's going on right now, um, there's a thing called Project Pele, where DOD and DOE are building a transportable mobile reactor Um, And it is designed, built, operated, and tested within three years. So the the, the engineering knowledge 
and the skill is there to do things much faster. At this point in time, there is a uh, impediment. Well, I won't say an impediment. <laughs> a um, a hurdle that some developers find it easier to go to Canada to develop their reactors than do it in the U.S. I'm going to jump in real quick with a political question. Then, <laughs> I often hear that we're going to simplify the permitting process. And I think a lot of people think that we're talking about permitting for things like high-power transmission lines and stuff like that. Are, is the nuclear industry also waiting with bated breath for that re, uh, simplification of the permitting process? Or is that not being addressed there? Well, I, I think the nuclear industry thought they simplified the permitting process when they developed something called 10 CFR 52. Um, most uh -huh. reactors in this country were developed under a two-part process where you apply for the construction permit, you built the plant, and then you went before a board to get an operating license. Mm -hmm. um, the Shoreham plant, which was built and never operated, showed the weakness of that uh, regulatory scheme when the local community refused to participate in emergency planning mm -hmm. activities. Yeah. The yeah. Vogel plants are um, being built under TENS 52, which was supposedly the simplified process. But we have found that um, that process locked in the design. So when you have first-of-a-kind plants that have never been built, the, um, it is a large leap of faith that you have designed everything properly and it will be put together properly. And if it was not built exactly according to plan, you have to go to the NRC to get licensing amendments. So it, it tends to slow the process down. I, I don't know if I addressed your question, but, yes, there was an attempt to simplify it. Yeah, okay. All right, well, um, let me remind everybody that they're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 from our studios in still beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Bruce Moreland, and my co-host for today's show is John Olson, and we're talking to Don Harker and Dr. Josh Gerrell, who are both experts on nuclear power. Uh, gentlemen, let's uh, let's let's shift over to talking about these small modular reactors. Uh, Don, you mentioned the new scale uh, reactor. Uh, the U.S. Navy has been using nuclear power for many decades with an extremely safe record. What advantages are there for small modular reactors to power cities? Uh, we asked this question in light of the fact that we need stable, reliable sources of power to maintain the electrical grid, which can be supplemented by wind and solar, including stored electricity. But clean renewables at scale are still kind of maybe decades away uh, from providing all of our electricity needs. We also know we need to combat climate change by tackling the production of CO2. And nuclear power seems to meet that critical need. What, what, what can you tell us about these new small modular uh, reactors? Uh, Don, we'll start with you and then shift over to you, Josh. Okay. Um, well, I would just, uh, just as a point of interest, you know, I mentioned the... Uh, our reactor development program, the Adams for Peace, when we built approximately 20 reactors between 52 and 67, all of various vintages, but all of those were of different styles. So while the light water reactor won out, there were um, high-temperature gas reactors built during that period of time. Um, there were um, molten salt reactors built during that period of time. And all of the new designs for SMRs, um, can trace a legacy to some of those previous ones. Those were all small plants. So in uh, in some respects, we're coming full circle to what was uh, maybe tested 
um, before, but now with more advanced technology, better engineering, understanding of things like that. Um, the light water reactor basically, so, some would argue the light water reactor became the reactor of choice just because uh, the first plant was Shippington that was built and the nuclear Navy um, funded a lot of development for the light water reactors. Um, the high temperature gas reactors, for example, the X energy reactor, um, um, there were prototypes um, built for Fort St. Varane, uh, Pico 1. Those reactors um, produce superheated steam, which is advantageous for the production of power and process heat. There are molten salt reactors, which um, um, use a different style. So there's, I think one of the most interesting ones that's being developed is the Westinghouse E. Vinci, which is a, a heat pipe reactor um, in the measured in the hundreds of kilowatt range, which you could basically um, power a building. So the advantages of the modularity is that you can create a factory, an assembly line process, transport these to a site, build them quickly, and get them operating I think I rambled there. but No, no, that's good. No, Josh, uh, any additional comments on the SMRs? SMRs, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I sort of gave the state of play of the commercial industry right now. Um, I think smaller is the future. I don't think we'll ever build, or maybe at least for the next several decades, uh, these large 1,000-megawatt sort of plants. And the reason is we're sort of right-sizing it. Uh, Don brought up, you know, you you don't not you, you may only need enough power for a small city of 50,000. You don't need, uh, you know, a million people, you know, a million homes worth of electricity. And so going smaller makes a lot of sense. It, it helps with the initial um, economics. So you don't have to ha- put as much money down to build a huge or, uh, you know, the smaller plants are, are not as expensive as a big, large plant. Um, and you can sort of build them in a modular fashion, as Don mentioned, and deploy them quickly. So. If you're if you if you have a town of fifty thousand, you build a, a small modular reactor, and if you double in size or you get a couple key uh, businesses to move in, you add another one. Um, and so just that that sort of modular, flexible approach, I think, is really where the future is. I mean, all of them use different, not you know, more advanced materials, more advanced technologies, all the things that we've learned um, related to sort of you know. M- better um, uh, deployment of the technology. But, you know, the real, the key is, is just they're flexible and they can be used for different things. I think Don brought up, you know, process heat. You could use them to desalinate. You could use them to deploy and recover from a natural disaster if they're transportable. I, you know, Don mentioned a couple of those. And so there's a whole range of, of technologies that could be deployed and they're all smaller. Smaller is the way of the future. Um, and I, you know, I think I'm really excited about where we go. I think the really small ones, the transportable ones, the the DOD, the Project Pele that Dom brought up, those are those are reactors that we could deploy in the next couple of years. Hmm. And so, just seeing that, I think is 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 really exciting. And, that- and and I think an interesting aspect is that as you go smaller, private industry is interested in, and they can do this on their own without their utility. So you see Dow Chemical and X Energy signing an agreement to build a a reactor on the Gulf Coast to provide process heat to a Dow Chemical facility. You see interest in the Canadian gold mines wanting a 
reactor of some type up there so they don't have to fly in diesel fuel. Mm. You see the U.S. Air Force wanting to put a small uh, E. Vinci, maybe one megawatt, multiple megawatt um, reactor at the Air Force Base at Ellison Air Force Base in Alaska. Um, nuclear power is the only source where you can get rid of the transmission system. That, that you don't is need a, a transmission system. That's a really good point. I, I love the phrase right-sizing. It used to be every city had their own power plant, a coal-fired power plant with piles of coal ash and all that to deal with. But you're saying we'll have these, what, like a manufactured home, but for nuclear power. That's pretty cool. All right, well, thank yeah. you. I, oh, Josh, go ahead. Can I just, yeah, I just wanted to, to just, you know, maybe add one more thing to that, that, that right-sizing. You know, you could potentially take a, a small reactor, take it with fuel, put it into a, uh, into a city, and it could operate for 10 years and power that city without any logistical, you know, shipping diesel in, no worries. You know, it's, it's basically a purpose-built battery that comes, deploys, you pick it back up after 10 years, and you put a new one in. I mean, it's really sort of life-changing for some of these small cities, bases, other places. So I think there's some real excitement and some real benefit to, to the right size. It's it's a brave new future we've got looking at it. Uh, I, I'm going to comment one on one thing. Uh, Bruce mentioned that I host National Security this week, so there's my brain is spinning right now about all these things that you're talking about with these small modular reactors. Uh, one of the things that uh, I, I had heard about when I was uh, on the Navy staff in the early uh, phases of the the war in Iraq uh, was that the the Army, uh, all of their supply lines were being targeted by the insurgents. And so you had all these fuel trucks that were driving around, uh, which had incredibly bad fuel mileage because <laughs> of the, the poor designs. But they were being targeted by the insurgents because all of the operating bases that the U.S. Army had established all across Iraq needed these constant supplies of fuel to, ke- to fuel all the, uh, you know, the combat vehicles, to fuel the generators and everything else. And so what you're really talking about is this ability to modularize uh, and very quickly to provide electric- electrical power uh, to forward operating bases. And one of the things that's really fascinating to me right now as I follow these trends in the military is that the military is starting to test a lot of electric vehicles for high mobility in the combat zone. So if, you're, if you have a forward operating base that's powered fully by a small modular reactor, not only are you powering the base, but you can charge up all of those electric combat vehicles that are then going to go out on patrol or, or engage the enemy uh, very, very quickly. So this is fascinating stuff that you're talking about. Thank you for, for filling us in on these small modular reactors. I think they're really exciting, and I love the idea of Northfield having its own fu- uh, fission system running. But speaking of fission, I'm going to talk over to Fusion. Back when I was a young launch officer, I was writing a paper, a research paper, on nuclear fusion. And for the listeners, fusion energy comes from fusing small atoms and getting energy out of that, as opposed to splitting large atoms and getting energy out. And it seems like fusion power has been a decade away for the last 50 years. (laughs) I was wondering... Uh, if you've heard anything or if you have any insights on what we might expect from fusion as we move forward. Um, well, I actually had the opportunity to work on a fusion project uh, several years ago. Um, and it was very interesting, um, the infrastructure that this company was developing and, and testing their uh, 
container, as you point out, infusion energy. You know, it's the same energy that's found in the sun. The question is you need to contain the energy after the helium hydrogen atoms are crushed together and, you know, maintain, basically create a little artificial sun and an electromagnetic field on Earth. Um, in the United States, we have a, um, now through deregulation, we have a competitive market for fuel. Uh, for electric electric energy. So the question for fusion is, you know, I can't answer when it will show up. I can't answer if it will show up. When I got in the industry, fuel cells were just around the corner, and they're still just around the corner. <laughs> um, but the, the question is, after the technical problems are solved, is can you make it a going concern in a competitive energy market? Hmm. So if you have something that's a high capital cost and a cheap fuel – which is essentially nuclear, um, you're not going to be able to compete against fission SMRs. You're not going to be able to compete against solar. You're not going to be able to compete against wind. So, you know, there's the technical problem, and then there's the business problem. So I hmm. think that's that's all to be determined. Yeah, and a fusion reactor is going to be large scale. So, yeah, no doubt. Well, Josh? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would probably, you know, agree with Don. I think we're still a little ways out on fusion. I think there is some, still some significant technical material confinement sort of questions around around fusion energy. And then it's how do you actually deploy it and fit it into this broader inner, you know, energy portfolio here in the U.S. and, and around the world. You know, from my perspective, I think fission, I, I need to get clean energy in the next 10 years and fission's the way to do that. Um, and, you know, I, I think fusion is probably, you know, it's very interesting and it has a lot of benefits if we could deploy it from a technical perspective, but we're not there yet. Um, but we do have a really good handle on the, the, the fission and nuclear energy from that side. So I have a couple of other follow-up questions I don't ask you since uh, f- it seems like fission is the way to go for the for the future until some some major breakthrough happens that we have a uh, a, a long-term f- uh, fusion uh, reaction because I I think the the longest they've been able to achieve one so far is about thirty seconds is that right uh, Josh and Don about a thirty-second fusion reaction. Yeah. It was very short. I don't know if it was even that long. <laughs> okay, but, okay. Uh, right. I'm not an expert. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I, I read in an article as as we were preparing for this show that uh, some of the some of the challenges that we face is that the fuel that's needed to create these, uh, you know, the fuel cells or the fuel for the fission reaction systems, some of that comes from Russia. That the supply chain comes from Russia. And with the situation now, the geopolitical situation, that we're potentially going to have some trouble getting that supply because of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I also know that there are there are some movements in the nuclear industry to try and take decommissioned nuclear weapons from the U.S. inventory in the Department of Energy and shift those back over to potentially being supply sources. Do I have that wrong? Did that article lie to me? Uh, where do we stand on the supply line for fuel for the fission reactions? Well, I mean, a a great deal of the uranium does come from um, Russia um, in in the past. I mean, Australia is a source, Kazakhstan is a source, so the U.S. is a source. Um, The advanced reactors require something called high assay, low enrichment fuel, Mm -hmm. where today's reactors run about 5% or lower 
enrichment, meaning how much U-235 they have. The the halo fuel will be about 20% um, enrichment. Um, The ground has just been broken on the factory uh, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, to start making some of that. Um, So supply chain is uh, an issue today, but there are other sources of supply for uranium. Uh, Uranium is... uh, pretty inexpensive at the moment um and i think that um you know supply issues can be solved the bigger issues perhaps might be you know who can fabricate steel who can fabricate these components that need to be put into the reactors to the quality standards that are done um it's unfortunate that the u.s has lost a lot of capability to make things and so we rely on um, our allies to help fabricate a lot of these components. Josh, go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo Don's concern about capabilities for fabrication. I think that's going to be a, a key driver to sh- show that we can effectively deploy some of these small modular reactors um, in the next few years is, you know, fabrication capabilities. As far as the, the uranium, I'll just maybe speak to that. You know, uh, enrich in the enrichment level, the amount of U-235 is key. Um, so the current fleet, again, is about 5%. These advanced reactors are going to be at probably up to 20% enriched. And so while we may have uranium, the process of enriching it is challenging. And so the capabilities there is still um, lacking in this country. And so uh, there's actually been some some congressional direction just, just recently um, to per- start trying to uh, get some 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 basically federal dollars in to, to encourage private industry to really ramp up its uh, capabilities to to make this higher enriched uranium. So it's starting. I think we're gonna you know it's sort of a chicken and egg question. Do we have the fuel for these advanced reactors, and how does that happen? But uh, you know it's definitely everybody on everybody's radar, and, and we're moving forward. Um, there there is um, at, across the com the U.S. There are some small amounts of these materials that may be available, but at large scale, I think it's it's still an unknown how we're going to get this this higher enriched uranium. I have one last follow-up question for you, and then we're going to have to probably close out the, the show. Unfortunately, we're almost at the end of our hour. Uh, both of you have your finger on the pulse of the nuclear industry. Are, are you seeing from a policy perspective uh, coalescing around the idea of greater support from political leaders on both sides of the aisle for nuclear power, considering the, the, the challenges of climate change? Oh, I, I would say definitely. I mean, I think one of the biggest striking examples of that is California, Diablo Canyon. Um, you know, people were um, agitating very vigorously to shut the plant down, um, and now they find that, um, you know, just through the path, their uh, energy policies have followed if they are going to meet their climate uh, goals as a state they need nuclear power Um, so i think that is the most dramatic uh, reversal that we've seen and i think that if you contrast um if you look at germany who went all renewables early in uh, mandated it. They're burning lignite coal to stabilize their grid, and the cost of energy is out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if for political leadership in this country, if you want to keep the price of electricity down, you're you're probably going to need nuclear power. Yeah, I'll just say yes, absolutely. You're seeing <laughs> su- support 
uh, on both sides of that, uh, both parties of nuclear power. It supports clean energy. It's safe. It's reliable. Um, you know, we when you see things where you know electric grids go down in natural disasters, and and you, you know you're missing that base load. You know, you see you see a lot more people sort of awake to the idea of oh man, we really need some of these these more reliable energy sources domestically. So it's a, it's a combination of the clean energy, but the reliability as well. So, yeah, we're seeing a lot of support. Gentlemen, unfortunately, uh, we're close closing out the end of the show today. Another hour has flown by here on Public Policy this week. Uh, this has been a great conversation, but we have to bring it to a close. We only have so much time each Friday morning. Uh, Don Harker and Dr. Josh Gerald, Bruce and I want to thank you for your time and ex- expertise today. If either of you have any closing comments to make, here's your opportunity. Don, I'll let you go first. Well, just uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about a very interesting topic. It's near and dear to my heart. And Josh? I would say the same. It was great chatting with you this morning. I'm a huge proponent of nuclear energy. I think it's it's an exciting time in the field, and I think it, it'll be a, a game changer over the next couple of decades here in the U.S. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thank you both, gentlemen. Yes, thank you both. That was it's been a great conversation. And that will conclude this week's edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. I'm Bruce Moreland, and my co-host today has been John Olson. Public uh, service announcement, don't forget to vote next Tuesday, November 8th, and then join us next Friday as we consider the impact of public policy from the choices voters have made on that election day. Folks, please tell your family and friends about public policy this week. It is our hope this show serves as a catalyst for you to have important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. Together, we can seek comprehensive, integrated solutions to the many challenges we face in our shared society. Thank you for joining us today on Public Policy This Week. We hope you'll join our show again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a fantastic Friday and a superb weekend. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.